Vladislava Connection listeners, Zach and I got to sit down with Vladislav Davidson. He's an incredibly well-rounded writer and author. He's the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Odessa Review. He's a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's the European culture critic with Tablet Magazine. And he just released a book called From Odessa with Love. I, I say Davidson or Davidson, depending on the situation. In Russian, would be Vladislav Davidson, Vladislav Davidson. My mother, after my parents got divorced, did change her last name from a Z to an S, so I kept my Z, though. So we got into just about everything. We talked about uh, Poland and Belarus, the weaponization of migrants that's currently happening. We talked about Ukraine. We got into some literature discussion. I'd uh, sit down and take a listen. Four, three, two... It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. I, I might also mute if I need to, you know, if I need to concentrate. Not to put a timestamp on this episode, but this has been a very news-heavy week in with the Belarus-Poland border, with the Kiev Post shutting down, with uh, more Russian activity on the Ukrainian border. There's so much that's been happening. Yeah, your coverage, you know, of Belarus was fascinating. And I guess we can, in many ways, kind of see this as a culmination of, of the events of last summer. What can you say really about the state of the opposition 13, 14 months on? You had this great line where you say that the protesters of last year were potentially too velvet to succeed. So maybe you could touch on the state of the opposition. We see Siganovskaya, you know, going around the globe, kind of making the case for, for Belarus. Belarusians are protesting despite the fear of being injured, fired, expelled from the country, and even murdered. Thousands have been detained for peacefully expressing their views. Hundreds have been tortured and mutilated. Nevertheless, within a week after the election, Around 200,000 people marched in the streets of Minsk under our white-red-white flag. And every Sunday since, thousands demand their constitutional right to freely elect their leader to be respected. So the opposition is more or less exiled. There are no opposition leaders within the country of note. They've all either left the country or are all in prison. So the opposition is basically in Lithuania. I saw Ms. Tsikhanovskaya in Vilnius three months ago, the last time I spoke to her. And I think they really are doing heroic work on a shoestring. They don't have much financial support from the European Union or from the Americans or the State Department. It's really difficult to get them financial support. They rely heavily on volunteers and money from their very well-organized diaspora. So they are doing heroic work. They have heroic levels of patience and self-control that I do not have. You know, Russians and Ukrainians are really different from, from Belarusians. Character, national character plays a big difference in the way these kinds of events unfold. Russians or Ukrainians would have gone berserk and would have killed a lot of people by now. The Belarusians are very special in this way, that they're more like the Canadians of Eastern Europe than anything else. They have extreme social cohesion, extreme patience, they are very, very, very patient, and they have high levels of resilience that other people would not have. Again, the Russians or the Ukrainians, they, they would not last in a 90-day revolution. You know, the Maidan took 92 days, 91 days. Most revolutions take two weeks, three weeks, a month. 
a year-long situation and a stalemate with the security services. This is a tremendous success that they have survived a year and uh, I think three months now of repression. So I, I wrote the very first piece for the Atlantic Council saying this is obviously too velvet to succeed because they're obviously not going to fight. They're obviously not going to take territory in the middle of a the city. They're obviously quite concerned about a Tiananmen Square situation with, with either the interior ministry troops or the Russian tanks coming in. So it, it was always going to be a case of them trying to hold off the regime from using butchery against them until the regime ran out of resources to keep paying off the security services. And they, in a way, succeeded by not having been crushed. But another way, they totally failed at having a revolution. But how, if they had a proper revolution, the, the Russians would have invaded. And they, they all knew that. So as things stand now and with the unfolding crisis at the, at the Belarus and Polish border, what can we make in terms of Lukashenko's role? Obviously, much has been made about you know Putin's role from, I guess you could say, the sidelines or as puppet master. But how do you view this crisis as unfolding further? And, and ultimately, how do you view Lukashenko's role? And then, you know, if there is indeed, right, uh, Putin lingering in the background, what, what can we make of, of his role? So, I mean, every, everyone says it, and obviously there's a very complex relationship between Lukashenko and Putin. It's, uh, everyone knows that they hate each other. Everyone knows that it's a uh, mutually coercive relationship. Everyone knows that it's a codependent relationship. But I'm not convinced yet because I've not yet seen the evidence that the Polish prime minister is offering to say that the Russians were masterminding this. I don't think that Lukashenko needs Kremlin or FSB people to tell him how to create problems. He's very good at doing that himself, and he is quite creative himself in, in that department. So while the, the Russians are quite happy to take advantage of this and they do coordinate, it's not apparent to me yet although it's probably the case that Moscow created this plan. They're certainly happy to help it create problems for Europeans. This is a, a tremendous issue. I've gotten a lot of flack from fellow Eastern European heads and experts by uh, taking the anti, let's say the anti-human rights side. Even though I, I, I hold a master's degree in human rights law, I'm absolutely in favor of a derogation of, of the human rights treaties. Europeans are in an absurd situation, not unprecedented. There have been other situations where specifically Castro waves of refugees and economic migrants to hold their more powerful neighbors hostage. But I, I'm absolutely of the idea. And this, and this, you know, I, I was a refugee to America myself, so people will accuse me of being a hypocrite, but it, it's completely impossible for us to deal with the refugee situation in a normal way when probably the Belarusian government gets ten thousand or fifteen thousand dollars per head from smugglers, that they're 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 making money on every smuggler as well as causing huge problems for European cohesion and the European external border. It's absolutely ridiculous for us to behave as if this is a normal situation. And while there have been waves of European bound refugees and economic migrants before that we've taken in. The fallout of 2015, both on spinning the Brexit arguments and on helping the rise of ultra right wing nationalists in Germany and allowing uh, Orban to win his or arguments in, in Brussels. I mean, 
it, it's just really, really, really bad. We have a really bad precedent. We cannot allow this stuff to be weaponized in that way and to allow normal procedures at the border for, you know, applying for asylum status. I mean, I definitely agree with you when, when you mentioned that we are pretending that this is normal when in fact it, it does feel like every other move from Belarus, from Russia is pushing that border of what is acceptable and even overreaching it. And Lukashenko is now threatening with a gas cutoff. Russia's also been meddling with, with gas flow as well. And now again, its presence is increasing in Ukraine. And the responses have so far just been either just public condemnation or sanctions. Is there anything more that can be done? I feel like that's the million dollar question. Like what else do you do against these states that are really just being full on aggressive now? Yeah, it's a really, really difficult issue because, you, first of all, you don't want to close off Belarus from the outside world. That's a, that's a good counter argument. On the other hand, the real, the real problem is, is that they're, they're on the verge of losing their sovereignty as a state. And the Russians basically want to swallow up the Belarus economy without actually paying the reputational, international and blood and treasure costs of actually annexing it, right? So they want to just completely take over the the crown jewels of the Belarus economy and and redistribute them amongst their own oligarchs because they're always running out of cash to bribe off members of a political elite. So they want to both not allow Lukashenko uh, to to become too powerful. They want him to survive because they're not willing to have a transition from the streets from down below, a democracy contagion. They're not willing to have a second from the streets, from the ground up revolution on their on their on their borders. So they have a very complex situation and they're not willing to lose. And they're also not willing to allow him to keep the sovereignty that they've had. And he also doesn't want to be just the governor of a region inside the Russian Federation and, and to be you know disposed of eventually. So it's a very complex situation where we don't want to reward this horrible behavior from this horrible dictator who is attacking both his own people and causing tremendous problems on the border. And also, if we allow Belarus to be taken over by the Russian military, that's going to completely realign the security stance and the security architecture of Eastern Europe, where the entire northern border of Ukraine will now have Russian troops on it. And the, and the Polish and Lithuanian border will also have Russian troops closer to, to Vilnius and to the Warsaw. So you, you have this horrific situation, a three-way standoff between the protesters, between Lukashenko, between Moscow, and between well, four-way, the fourth one would be the Europeans. And you know we, we did not react belligerently enough or aggressively enough after the kidnapping of 100 European citizens made hostage at gunpoint from, from the sky when, when Lukashenko's MiG pointed uh, rockets, anti-plane rockets at a, at a flight, leaving an Irish flight full of European citizens leaving Greece on its way to Lithuania. So the Europeans did not do enough to show that they were uh, playing hardball. And now the, uh, uh, to mix metaphors, the chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah, you touch on Ukraine as well. We're talking about this kind of triumvirate of forces here between the Europeans, Belarus, Russia. I, I've seen your comments of dovish as it relates to the Biden administration's commitments to Ukraine. Where does the U.S. fit in, if at all, to this kind of morass of events that are occurring? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Let me unpack that. So 
with, with you have a, you have a completely different kind of theater with the Biden administration that you that you had with with the Trump administration. So with the Trump administration, you had the rhetoric of a reset and let's be friends from Trump, but the, he was he was saying very very dovish things and he was basically calling for a reset openly while signing off on the most belligerent legislation in terms of the Nord Stream 2 uh, sanctions, in terms of sanctioning particular Russian billionaires, in terms of giving weapons to the Ukrainians, in terms of all sorts of things on the technical level. The Biden administration, they are talking a tough game, but they what they actually want is a quiet reset without actually calling it that. They really want to concentrate on China and they see Russia as a sideline and a sidebar. And there have been arguments and policy debates between the National Security Council and the State Department, with the State Department more or less losing that argument. And the National Security Council, people who want to have a a grand bargain somewhere down the line with the Russians and the Chinese, winning that argument quietly. So the Biden administration wants to basically come to some kind of accord. They played a very bad game with the sanctions. They allowed the sanctions on Nord Stream 2 to not happen. Basically, all they had to do was just say the Trump administration already passed this law. We just have to we have to keep to that law, even if we don't like it. Uh, they did not choose to do so. They had cooperative summit with Putin and Biden, even though they didn't really need to do that. They didn't really get very much in return for it. And it was good optics for the Russians and nothing really serious came out of it. They have a very difficult situation now with Ukraine, and they have a very difficult situation now with uh, Belarus boiling over, and they, they don't really know what to do with it. And they are more and more getting pushback from friends of Ukraine in uh, even the congressional caucuses, people like uh, Ms. Kuptor, Congresswoman Kuptor. Uh, there's been a really interesting kind of bipartisan alliance between Russia hawks on the moderate Democratic side and with people like Senators Hawley and Ted Cruz are thinking that the Biden administration is not doing great on foreign policy. They've screwed up Afghanistan and they had a, a they got pie on their face, which they didn't expect with the um, Australians and the, and the French nuclear missile deal. So they are not doing great in foreign policy from the standpoint of European allies and critics on the Hill, moderate critics on the Democratic side and radical critics on the Republican side. So they they are in a situation that they prefer not to be in the sense that their their preferred policies to let the situation go quietly. So I hope that's a good answer. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we hear much here in the media and amongst the punditry here about the fact that you know the U.S. is kind of abandoning uh, abandoning its role in Afghanistan, and and that in one way or another will be taken into the calculus of other powers in Europe and other leaders across Europe. Do you believe that will be the case? Do you believe that? For example, the Zelensky government takes this into account when they're kind of doing their their power politics assessments, or is this kind of all built up in the Western media? Absolutely, it is the case that there, there was this week of terrified histrionics in Kiev. In fact, I wrote an article about it in Foreign Policy magazine. The, the headline was something like, the, Kiev is, uh, is concerned that they'll be abandoned next. This is absolutely a signal that you're sending to everybody. That you're not that you're not going to fight for people who will not fight for themselves. That American commitments are not important. That anyone who doesn't have a treaty of defense with with uh, the Americans is on their own. They, they've been told uh, quietly and not so quietly that they that they need to take care of themselves and cultivate their own garden and deal with their own security issues. 
And I do talk to people in the Zelensky administration. I do talk to people who are ministers and who are people who are the head of Naftagas. Believe me, in my conversations with, with deciders in the Zelensky administration, they took full notice of the Afghanistan debacle and it did not help American credibility. I, I greatly appreciate that answer. Um, I guess to the American audience, it's somewhat surprising given that it was a 20 plus year commitment. So I think sometimes when we hear the rhetoric that's the Americans just packed up and ran, it, you think, you know, a two decade plus commitment would show some resolve uh, on the behalf of, of the American government protecting its allies. But clearly that that maybe didn't have the effect it, it, despite our, our, our time there. Look, this is the third president in a row who is, let's say, not an isolationist, because he's not an isolationist. He's a paid-up member of the Senate Foreign Policy Co- Committee and, and, a, and a policy elite who is supposed to understand what he's actually doing. But he is the third president in a row who wants a drawdown of the American role in the world. This is something that they were ideologically outright about it. With Biden, it's a, it's a realist calculus. It was always the case that he wanted to get out of Afghanistan. He was always the dissenting voice on Afghanistan. It was always going to happen that Americans were going to leave. It was a matter of time. It's only a question of what the deal would be and how long the the locals would have, or maybe they would bisect the country or divide it. Uh, it. It wasn't the fact that they left. It was how stupidly they left, how inefficiently, how quickly the Afghan troops collapsed, how bad our own intelligence was about how how long uh, we could we could uh, stick it out and how long the Afghan government could stick it out after we left. And it just, it's just, it just sends a very bad signals to the rest of the world about our competence, you know, let alone our capacity. that line, I was actually reminded, I recently heard in a conference, uh, Peter Pomerantsev actually also brought up how Lukashenko essentially kidnapped that plane, had it brought back, no one did anything about it. And he expressed a, a very deep frustration in the inability of some of these bigger states in, in doing anything about these problems and some of these things that these autocrats eff- effectively are getting away with. And he suggested that perhaps a way forward is that these smaller states should be working together rather than waiting for someone like America to come and rescue them. Do, do you think that's a viable thing in, as opposed to waiting for Biden to do something? That's a great question. First of all, I, I want to say, speaking of Peter Pomerantsev, he's a pal. He actually wrote the introduction to my book from Odessa with Love. Peter is a creative mind. He makes quick and often counterintuitive connections very quickly. He's absolutely right. There have been for a couple of years quiet discussions about the, the Eastern European countries, which have a, um, a problem with uh, Russian security, having a kind of Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth-style interim Mediterranean-wide security alliance. So basically the Poles, the, the, the Hungarians, the Ukrainians, they are basically more conservative than the rest of Western Europe. And they also have security concerns that are, are, are only abstract to the average Portuguese or, um, let's say, Czech or uh, Dutch minister or elite. So they have interests in terms of security, which are existential from their standpoint. The, the Lithuanians, the, the Balts, the Poles, uh, the Hungarians to a certain point. Well, the Hungarians play a double game with the Russians, which the Poles don't because they, they, they see the Russians as their historical enemy. 
So they're not going to screw up Ukrainian NATO aspirations and NATO talks just for their own personal vendetta, which the Hungarians have done. Yeah, the Hungarians have a, a, a large diaspora, which is outside of their modern borders. And they like to give out passports because they need to keep their population from declining. And they're just, you know, they give out passports to ethnic Hungarians in Slovakia and Moldova and Ukraine. And the Ukrainians had a tremendous problem with passports being given out in the out of the consul by the Hungarian consul in uh, uh, Zakarpatia. And they didn't like that Ukrainian citizens were be giving out passports on, on Ukrainian territory. At least, at least have some good manners. Go to Hungary if you're going to do it right. And the Hungarians would throw a wrench into the works and make tremendous problems for Ukrainians within the European Union and with uh, NATO aspiration talks, making problems for them getting a map, a so-called membership action plan with NATO. The, the, the Poles would never do that. There are huge problems with, you know, killings during World War II and right after World War II. A hundred thousand people were massacred in the 40s by killing by with uh, the OUN and all that. This is a well-known fact. The, the Poles don't love that. They will have uh, uh, quite frank discussions with Ukrainians on the world stage because they know that their real enemy is Russia. I, I did want to make sure we, we touched on your book that was actually introduced to Ukrainian literature not too long ago and actually someone you've interviewed and Yuri Andurkovich. And I absolutely loved Recreations, this kind of crazy fever dream and this uh, <laughs> descent into hell. Uh, it was absolutely fabulous. So maybe you could... You know, you could certainly touch on your interview with Mr. Anturkovich, but, you know, I'd love to more so touch on your book, From Odessa with Love. By all means, we'd love to highlight and showcase your book while we have you here. Uh, thank you. So uh, for our listeners, I compiled about 45 pieces that I, I've written over about eight years to decade of, of my four or 500 essays, pieces, book reviews. I took out the, the 45, which were best at telling the story of contemporary Ukraine. I added new material. I combined some into chapters. It's, it's not quite a selected essays and it's not quite a book of new material, though there is new material that hasn't been read elsewhere. And some of it is, is expanded for this book. But I also included three long interviews in the back of the book that I, I compiled with three different personalities, one on culture, one on diplomacy, and one on literature. So the three interviews, one with, um, as you said, who is probably the most well-known Ukrainian writer, contemporary writer, Mr. Yuri Andrachovich, wasn't so much an interview as, as much as it was a liquid lunch where we uh, basically we discussed the, the way that he saw the influence of American beat poetry be assimilated into contemporary Ukrainian literature. I think it's a really interesting conversation and it was a, a lot of fun to have it. It took place in Odessa six, five, six years ago. The second conversation was with Ambassador Stefan Pfeiffer, the former American ambassador to Ukraine. It was on the account of his publishing his memoir, uh, Trident and the, and the Eagle, a diplomatic history of American-Ukrainian uh, diplomatic relations right before uh, the Maidan. And the third one was with my friend, the American, Venezuelan-born American conductor, Hobart Earl, the conductor of the Odessa Philharmonic. I think that's a really interesting conversation also about classical music and politics in Ukraine from the standpoint and view and vantage point of an American who has made his life in Ukraine and in Odessa. So, you know, it's a, it's a book about politics and culture and the way that they shape each other. And so much of contemporary writing about Ukraine, of which there isn't that much, let's be honest, 
is just too political, too much about the war, too much about NATO and deterrence and nuclear missiles and Russian troops and annexation and Crimea, but not enough of it is about culture. And the real story since 2014 is not the creation of a Ukrainian army, which can stand up to the second most powerful military in the world and the one with the most nuclear missiles. It's the creation of an independent culture, a new nation state with a new national identity and a new civic political culture, complete with a literature and poetry. Zach and I are both in a course right now that, again, as you mentioned, is touching on Ukrainian literature. And our professor, Oksana Lutsushina, she mentions that of all Ukrainian books, like Zach, I think she said only 3% has ever been translated into English, which is such a shame because, as you said, there's a boom now happening of people writing and expressing themselves and a resurgence of using Ukrainian as opposed to Russian. But so much of that's not getting out into the world like people only care about countries like this when there's a problem there and not about the people and like some of the more beautiful things yeah yeah that's all totally correct and there is of course a infrastructure that was built since 2014 that you need in order to create books you don't just need young writers with talent and interest and revolutionary fervor and a spark and uh, obsessive monomania in their head in order to write you also need translators an infrastructure of publishers, bookstores, uh, you know, the, the Russians were dumping basically books on the, on the market because the Russians and Ukrainians had a de facto single market for culture and literature and film before 2014. The, the fact that there was no demarcation line between the Ukrainian market and the Russian market allowed for cheap, not, not in the bad sense, but inexpensive Russian products to outcompete Ukrainian products. When you have the entire population completely bilingual, they could buy a book published in Moscow for, let's say, 70 grivna, or they could buy a book for 200 grivna published in Kiev. It's very much the case that the Ukrainians needed to create a independent market in order to have a growing cultural firmament. We are also recently completed uh, the work by uh, Jadan, the orphanage, right? The, the central theme is is certainly the war, but I think for, for the American reader, such as myself, it, it really does well to paint the tragic, nebulous picture of, of what's going on in uh, certain parts of, of eastern Ukraine. Again, I, I know the war is kind of the focal point there, but Jadan's work was, was also, talking about Anthrokovich as well, uh, his work was really illuminating for us as well. Can I, can I tell a Zidane story? I like Zidane. Please, please. <laughs> please. You know, Zidane's a lot of fun, and he's also uh, not just an inspector of souls, a writer of great national poetry in, in the middle of a war. One time in 2016, I was running a literary conference. I had a magazine, a literary magazine I was editing at the time, and I, I had gotten a grant from, I think, the, the Swedish government to run a a series of weekend-long courses for young aspiring journalists in Odessa on what it is like to write journalism. I think I taught them Norman Mailer's The White Negro in Russian translation. It was a lot of fun. And I, I hired Radan to teach a course, and he was supposed to teach a course at 10 in the morning. And I went to his uh, hotel room to pick him up, and I knew he had played a, a concert the night before in Odessa with his band, The Dogs. And he staggers out of his room, totally hungover, and he had to teach in 10 minutes. And 
I, I look at him and he looks at me and he knows that he's contractually obligated to, to teach in 10 minutes. And he just, he doesn't say that he's not going to do it, but he just looks horrified. And I said, look, uh, you know, we can put off the course for about 40 minutes. We can, we can start a bit later. We'll get you a cup of coffee and a bit of an omelet or breakfast or maybe a croissant or something. And, and we could just start a little later. How's that sound? And he, and he just had this look of complete thankfulness to me as if I was the Messiah, as I was as if I was saving him from this horrible thing. Sometimes that's all you need. It's a Don anecdote. Oh, that's great. And in that moment, I can imagine to him, you very much were the Messiah, maybe even better offering <laughs> coffee and eggs. Um, have you ever gone to his shows? No, I, I've been to three of his shows. Once it was when I didn't know him as well as I do now. And once it was in 2016, there was a wonderful concert and theater piece that he did. I forget the name of the uh, 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 theater person in Kiev. And I don't know if you've ever listened to his music. Uh, his, his lyrics are very interesting, but the music is basically 1990s ska. And I was sitting next to a uh, an American, an ethnic Ukrainian, American citizen, an American-born Ukrainian, who was a former prosecutor in New Jersey, and he was a federal official. He had been sent by the State Department in order to help the Ukrainians liaison with, I think, the Venice Commission on um, rewriting their rules for anti-corruption legislation for judges. And so I'm sitting next to this gentleman, and we're talking. We're talking about Ukrainian politics. And at the end of the show, I asked him about uh, Jadan's music. I said, why is it that Ukrainian music, the most up-and-coming, avant-garde, progressive Ukrainian music, why is it that it sounds so much like 1998 ska from New Jersey? And the former federal prosecutor from New Jersey says to me, that question is beyond my pay grade. No one can answer on why ska happens or what it is. I think that's a universal thought. <laughs> So I actually wanted to touch back on the book and also you mentioned that, you know, it's a it's a compilation of eight, eight years of work on Ukraine and following what's been happening, all of these changes. What what has it been like covering this country that you are personally connected to, like watching it shift and, and grow since 2014 and changing presidents and this and that? Like, what has that been like? It's extraordinarily exciting very gratifying because it's at the center of everything, including numerous international scandals, including, unlikely enough, both American parties' main presidential contender, the flag bearer of both political parties' 2020 campaigns were involved with Ukraine scandals. How, how, how crazy is that, right? Both, both Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden their main liability in the 2020 campaign was Ukraine to one way, one extent or another. So it's it's this extremely interesting country. It's an important country. It's the most quickly developing national culture in Eastern Europe. My ancestors are from there. My wife is from there. I felt and feel a deep commitment to the country and to its national identity and to its national culture and to the development of a national culture. As a Russian also, I, I, I spent my childhood in Moscow Obviously, if there if there is liberal democracy in Ukraine, sooner or later, Russians will say, huh, maybe I want to live like a normal person. Maybe I want to get on to my hind legs and stand up and, you know, not crawl around on all fours. And uh, maybe I want liberal democracy. It's it's fascinating. It's really gratifying. And to be part of it, to really take part in the creation of a national culture. I mean, we ran a literary magazine. I, I translate. I, I've done all sorts of things. I, I found myself being in the midst of 
Ukraine gate as a witness, as a federal witness. I write in the book about that. So as much as it's gratifying, it's also extremely grim and often very, very unsatisfying in terms of two steps forward, three steps backward. You often wish that the Ukrainians would get it together and that it's been seven, eight years already and a lot of things could have happened faster. It's just a really slow process in many ways. I'd be remiss having you on if I didn't ask about Russia. Something that was kind of on my mind and having read a few articles and then I was actually doing my research, I saw you either retweeted or it was something related to your social media, but the designation of Memorial as an extremist organization, you know, something being a child of the 90s and I grew up kind of idolizing what what the Russians did with Memorial and having to dig up this, the awful, brutal history of the gulags, the camps, everything related to forced migration. And now to see this, you know, I'm, I'm now 31, and now to see this organization being labeled an extremist threat, even to an American, it was kind of heart-wrenching. So I'm not sure if you'd like to touch on that, but the floor is yours as it relates to Russia in really any way you see fit. Yeah, thank you. So Memorial is being attacked now, as are numerous other civic organizations. I think they've really cleared the field of civil society, which was allowed to operate. Uh, I'm actually now in the midst of completing a profile of uh, uh, Leonid Volkov, Navalny's right-hand man. I went to uh, Lithuania and I, I spent some time with him. He's a really impressive guy in many ways. The, uh, the return of Navalny was a catalyst event will be seen historically as a catalyst event that forced the Kremlin to make a decision about what it was going to do. And they they went with a nuclear option of totally nuking the opposition and dropping a nuclear bomb on the opposition field. So legally, it's now basically impossible to, to run an opposition organization. And they've cleaned up a lot of the uh, regional opposition structures and civic society. So now they're going for targets of convenience. The uh, the pride of tigers has cleared away the, let's say, the wildebeests. And now they have wounded, vulnerable animals out in the field that they can hunt. They're going after particular organizations which are liberal or broadly liberal or in opposition or broadly in opposition, however you want to define it. And they're really making having any kind of civic society opposition to the, the prevailing mode of a Kremlin really impossible. So, you know, I think they're really running out of targets because they're going after memory. You know, I, I wouldn't go back to uh, to Russia now as a journalist because I, I know I sooner or later have to pack up within a couple of months ago and leave the country. I think they're going to really start going after Western journalists more than they have been. They're really looking for ever new foreign agents, quote unquote, to go after. And uh, they're in the middle of a technical arms race with the opposition, which is, you know, for the most part now headquartered abroad about technical savviness, how quickly they can ban them and ban their apps that they're using from usage inside Russia, uh, as opposed to uh, the, the defensive maneuvers of the opposition who are also technically very savvy. So, you know, the, the elections, they basically got the result that they wanted, but they, they had a much smaller share of the vote that they had fragment in order to get the same number of votes. So the number of votes that the Kremlin controls inside uh, inside of parliament 
is the same, but the share of the votes that they got to get the same amount is not the same. So basically, they don't have the same plurality that they had when they last declared a supermajority during the last parliamentary elections. So in one sense, they did win the election, but they, they, they had to cheat a lot more than they did last time. So last time they got, let's say, 65 or 70 percent, and they, they cheated up to 85 percent in terms of, of the power in, the, in parliament. This time, they probably did win a bare majority, let's say above 50% of the votes. So they do have, uh, let's say, some sort of mandate, but they had to cheat a lot more in order to find the, the rest of those 25% that they needed in order to have a supermajority in, in parliament, right? They needed to cheat in a much more apparent way and in much, well, much less deniable way and a way that everyone saw across the society. You had, to, you had to steal more votes, you had to throw more ballots into the box, you had to use more electronic tricks in accounting to reallocate votes. You had to steal a lot of uh, mandates from the communists in order to have enough seats in parliament, which created enemies of the communists, where they used to be a, a pliant opposition-friendly internal opposition, right? Where they were basically on the Kremlin's dime. Now they're now they're they're divided between the, the the younger generation that wants to fight inside the Communist Party and the older generation that wants to keep taking money from the Kremlin and wants to continue taking positions in government. So you, you had uh, the same outcome, but you have much less of a mandate. And in a certain sense, uh, Volkov and the opposition are correct that this election was not a success for the Kremlin because they did not get the same results that they got last time with uh, the same number of votes. They they squandered their political capital. And it's not apparent how much they squandered because they still have, let's say, half the population, but they no longer have three quarters of the population. And when you have to actually steal 18 seats or 12 seats or whatever the, the opposition is plausibly claiming was stolen from them in Moscow, that shows that the entire population of Moscow and half the population of St. Petersburg is willing to change things up. So in the long term, it's not in terms of uh, of the direction it's going, of, of the ratchet effect. It's not a great outcome for the Kremlin. They have to figure out something else. There's the sense that this is a musty system, you know? say thank you. It's been a fascinating conversation from Shadan to Russian elections. I'm, I'm so grateful that I, I got to join in. Yeah, I, again, like, thank you so much for such a well-rounded, multifaceted conversation. I, I think it's a little bit hard to avoid that when so many things are interconnected and there's no simple approach to so many of the things we've talked about today. So again, thank you for taking the time to sit down and chat with us about your book and about your writing and about just current events. Thank you for having me. It's been really great. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be in Texas sometime next year with my second book. I think uh, maybe I should come visit you guys also. Yeah, let's organize a Texas tour. Perfect. We, I have so many tacos that I could introduce you to. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you.